Well, I think one thing that we are continually reminded of is that, that life is not easy. It's not a walk in the park all the time and just something that is an easy path, is an easy road. Life sometimes is hard, and sometimes it's, it's the unexpected flare-ups. It's the unexpected trials, the unexpected crises that flare up, can knock us off kilter, get us off track. Life can be hard. On this Mother's Day, motherhood can be hard. Motherhood can be hard. Sometimes Mother's Day can be hard for some of us for different reasons. Life is hard. Parenting is hard. Raising kids in today's world is, is hard with the different things that they go through. And then you throw into the mix not just the daily trials and the crisis and the flare-up troubles of the day, but evil in our world and the reality of that and the temptation, the sin that's, that's all around us. And so we cannot forget or fail to remember the realities of such things around us, trouble and evil. We can't ignore it. And Ben's us to ask, how do we handle such crisis, such troubles, such evil in our day? And I believe in today's text, we obviously see the answer of the one, the one who we are to turn to. In times like we live in, in days um, where troubles arise. And so today, I would love for us to look at these two episodes together because we see the reality, I believe, of life and at the same time, the reality of our God who has dominion over all things, who is all-powerful over all things, who has authority over all things and is sovereign over all. And so if we could today, I pray, have our faith encouraged, faith increased in this one who has the power over the winds and the waves and even demons today. And so let us see this in this text. Look at verse 22 as we begin today. Now, on one of those days, interesting little phrase by Luke, on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. And Jesus said to the disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. And so they launched out. But as they were sailing along, Jesus fell asleep. He fell asleep. He took a nap. All right? You think about Jesus, right? He is busy with ministry. He's been proclaiming. He's been pro preaching. We've been seeing that as he's speaking about the kingdom of God. He's declaring the truth of God. And he's healing people. And then he's getting his steps in as well, right? I mean, probably 20,000, 50,000 steps a day. I mean, I don't know how many, but he's putting a lot of steps in. And he's walking everywhere he is going. And so he gets into the boat with the 12 disciples. They're sailing along. He is tired. He's exhausted. So he does what we all want to do about 2 p.m. today, right? Maybe 3. We want to take a nap. We want to take a nap, okay? And I believe every mom in this house should, right? Take a nap today. Okay, there you go. Just, just, just doing that, all right? <laughs> 
Um, remember, Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, simultaneously these two natures is how he exists. That's who he is. Philippians 2, 6 through 7 says, although he existed in the form of God, he took on the form of a bond sermon. He was made in the likeness of man. And so here he is, tired and exhausted. And just like we would be, he takes a nap right there on the boat before getting to their destination. I think one thing we take from this is that if Jesus needs rest, so do we. We need rest, and it's important. It's important for ministry. It's important to be effective in serving and loving others. And we see that with Jesus. And so at the end of verse 23, an unexpected trouble comes. A fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. And so the lake that they're on is the Sea of Galilee. It's more than 12 miles by 6 miles. Um, It's also 200 feet deep in some areas, and some say even larger. And so this is a big lake. I remember being on this sea uh, back in the 90s, and I remember we got on it in the morning time. uh, And just being on it then, there was some wind, and but you get on it, and you're like, dude, this thing's huge. This thing's huge. It's gigantic. Um, It's unlike anything I've I've ever seen. And about between three and seven, the winds pick up, and the lake can get quite treacherous and, and very rough. And so on this occasion, The wind is blowing, it becomes fierce, Luke says. The waves brought on danger as water starts taking over the boat. And so you've got this occasion with these 13 men on the ship. This little fishing boat, Jesus is asleep. The 12 are probably trying to figure out what do we do? I mean, I don't know what they're doing in this case. If they're cupping their hands and trying to get the water out, they've got buckets. I I don't know what's going on. But I imagine they're trying to save this boat, ultimately save their lives. Can you imagine if it's maybe at night, you're trekking along, the winds and the waves come, and you can't see anything. Remember, no city lights, right? You're just looking for maybe just that dim hope of of seeing a fire so you can try to navigate to that area. Whatever the case, whatever time of day it was, it was terrifying. I bet they tried and tried all they could to no avail they could not win against the winds and the waves. They were too much. And then look at verse 24. They came to Jesus. They woke him up. They say, Master, Master, we are perishing. And Jesus got up. He rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. Jesus is sleeping pretty good, right? If you think about it, water's overtaking the boat. Right, winds are whipping, and he is out. Right, and so I think maybe this is where his divinity came in a little bit. He's got some supernatural napping going on, right? <laughs> and we all kind of would love a little bit of that sometimes. Whatever the case is, Jesus gets up. He rebukes the winds and the waves. But listen to what they say to him, Master, Master. We are perishing. Mark four puts it a little differently, so that it kind of reads like this. Jesus, do you care that we are perishing? And yet you are sleeping. So Jesus gets up, commands the wind and the waves. In Psalm 89, verse 8 through 9, 
It says about the Lord, it says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty God? You rule the swelling of the sea, and when it waves rise, you still them. And so here's Jesus, fully human, taking a nap, and fully God, telling the winds and the waves to be still and to cease. It's a beautiful picture of who Jesus is, that he is truly God in the flesh. But look at these men that are with him this day. And Jesus turns to them in verse 25, and he says to them, where is your faith? You see, they were fearful and amazed, and they were saying to one another this, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? And so Jesus, knowing their questioning, questions the disciples' faith. They had doubted that he had cared about them. All right, Jesus, do you want us to perish? Do you not care that we're perishing here in this water and the winds? They question his compassion. And then they question his personhood, who he is, and his, his power. You see, these guys seem to have believed, kind of like their contemporaries of the day, like others did, that they're looking at Jesus as this Messiah, yes, but a physical Messiah that would set up this earthly kingdom and would overcome maybe the Roman government. But they did not believe, as we can see in this case, that he is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh. They failed to believe that. And in this moment, the disciples are feeling helpless, Helpless. Do you ever get to that point? You ever have those moments where you feel helpless during the day? Sometimes events in life leave us feeling that way. We feel at risk, whether a situation happens at work, we don't know what to do, whether it's a situation where we have a loved one that maybe is sick, or maybe we go through an unexpected tragedy, maybe a relationship that is breaking down and we just feel helpless. And so like the disciples, we can get to that place, kind of like they did, where they doubted in this moment God's goodness, God's power. We, like the disciples, will try to do everything we can on our own, kind of like these guys, probably trying to save the boat from being overtaken before they turn to Jesus. And we can do that at times too. We wait to turn to him. And sometimes to where maybe it's too late to get help. I see this sometimes with, with marriages over the years that are struggling. Couples will go through troubles. They'll rely on themselves before they'll reach out for help, tell anybody, before they ultimately turn to Jesus. It's almost where it's, it's too late. But I think the lesson we learn here, if we can, just real simply, is we are to go to Jesus first. Whether it's the troubles that flare up during the day, whether it's the big tragedies, whatever it could be, we learn here our first move. I can honestly say sometimes it's not my first move. But our first move must be turn to Jesus. And sometimes we can get in that easy mode where things happen and we just automatically think, well, I can fix this, right? We get in fix-it mode, right? Especially as guys, we get, I can fix this. But Jesus wants us to turn to him to believe that, yes, he is loving. He is who he says he is. He is God who's all-powerful. And he wants us to trust him and who he is and what he can do. 
that he has the power of the winds and the waves. So let me ask you this morning, I think it's a good question for us all where we're at today. Where is our faith? Where is our faith? What, what do we believe about Jesus? Do we believe that he is, yes, the Messiah, but that he is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh? Do we believe that? Do we believe that? The disciples struggled with that. They, they doubted that. They did not see him in this moment who he really was. What do we believe about Jesus? Where's our faith? I, I pray that you see Jesus, yes, as the Messiah, the one who saves, the Savior, but that you know that he is also the Son of God. He has power over the winds and the waves to where he says, stop, and they stop. That's who he is. He is God. Now, he has a quick nap. He gets up, calms the winds and the waves, just kind of a normal day, right, for Jesus? And then they continue to sail to their destination, and it's right back to the demands of ministry, right back to it. Now look at verse 26 through 31. They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by this man from the city who was possessed with demons. And so just stop there for a second. They go to the country of the Gerasenes. This is a pagan area, a very dark area, unbelieving Gentile region. And as soon as Jesus steps onto the shore, this man who was demon-possessed meets him right there. And look what he finds. This man had not put on any clothing for a long time. He was not living in a house, but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you. Do not torment me. For he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked, What is your name? And he said in response, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. And so what do we see here? First, this man's condition. Right? He, he lacks all personal dignity. Obviously, this guy has been naked for a long time. He had no proper shelter. Where has he lived? He's lived in tombs. He shouts at Jesus. He had been overtaken by this unclean spirit often on many different occasions. And those in the city, they seemed like they probably knew him very well. They kept him in chains and under guard. But he had strength to break out of that. And he would be taken into the desert by these demons that possessed him. And so that's the condition that we see here, the situation that this man is in. Can you imagine this? If you're face to face with this, if you met this man. I remember one time I was in Africa and we were walking through the villages. I'll never forget coming upon this one village. And as we were approaching it, the sun was out. It was a beautiful day. As we got closer and closer, it just got dark, physically dark outside. It just started getting darker and darker in the middle of the day. And I remember walking, and I remember the pastor saying to me, and just saying, hey, listen, I just want you to know that the village we're about to walk to is, is, is really heavily drenched in paganism. 
and it is very dark, and I just thought to myself, man, I can feel it. And I remember sitting with a lady one day, and just you could just see in her eyes um, evil. And I remember looking at her and telling her about Jesus, and she said no to Jesus, and she told me she said she believed in paganism. And so i never forget that. Remember, never forget going to that school in that area and standing before 200 kids and telling them about Jesus and a little girl raising her hand and saying, hey, is it true that if we believe what you're saying that the witch doctor is going to curse us? And just remember feeling the evil in the room that day in that school and the reality of, of darkness and the presence of evil manifesting in many different ways in a region that was filled with paganism in that little village. And my heart just broke, just feeling the weight of that, the evil that was around it and the hold that the enemy had. We're not sure why this guy was going through this. Was, was this an experience kind of like Job face, where God allowed the enemy, allowed the demon to come and possess this guy? We don't know. Is this a guy who opened his life up to demonic influence? Sometimes unbelievers can do that, and that's the reason sometimes that this happens. Maybe through habitual, uh, unrepented sin, sometimes through drug and alcohol abuse, sometimes through false religion, especially occultic activity, uh, spiritualism in general. And this area definitely was prone to that. And so when someone does this, when they open themselves up to such things, demonic control can happen over their thoughts and over their actions. And obviously that's happened here. It's impacted his mind. It's impacted his, his body and ultimately his soul. And it makes you wonder, what did these guys try to do to help him? Did they try to help? Or did they just put him in chains and bonds? What did they do? Sometimes in our society, what people try to do, and it's a tough situation, is, is what do we do? We address the mind, so we'll give principles and and thoughts and philosophies to the mind to help people in their thinking, which is needed and necessary at times. For the body sometimes, what do we do? We, we give medicine sometimes, which is sometimes is, is necessary. But what a lot of times we fail to do, especially in secular society, they ignore it, is we don't address the soul. We don't address the soul. And obviously, this man's issue is in the depths of the soul, and it's impacting who he is, so much to the point where this demon is overtaking his personality, that he's almost like a different person. It's a sad state. The demons in this case, as we just read, they know Jesus. He calls out to Jesus and says, Son of the Most High God. And so in that interesting, the, the disciples at this point, at this point, they will eventually, but they don't recognize who Jesus really is, but the demons do. The demons do tells us in James 2 that they know who God is, but what they, they don't love Jesus. They don't submit to God. They don't submit to Jesus for who he is. And the demon asked Jesus this, do not torment me. Why? Because the demons know their final destination. They know. They know that their final destination is hell. A real conscious place of torment and those who do not love and submit their lives to Jesus Christ, that's where they will spend eternity. And they know that's where they're going to spend eternity. 
And they know that Jesus is the judge, and they know that only Jesus can be merciful. And so this is like them asking for mercy. Have mercy. Don't send us to our final destination yet. And that's why even they say they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. And so the abyss, the Jews believed that the abyss was this watery, deep place below the earth. And so that's the word there. And so they were asking Jesus, please don't send us there. I don't think they were saying please. But anyway, they said don't send us there. Jesus also asked him, what is your name? This is an interesting just little tidbit. They respond back, legion. Legion is the word, a Roman military term for 6,000 soldiers. And so you think about just the depth of this possession this man was in. Potentially, some say 6,000 demons. Now, demons also lie, right? And so we don't know if that's truly the case. But whatever the case, this guy is being controlled. See, I want you to get from this that Satan is real. Just like troubles flare up during the day, and when you're on the Sea of Galilee, they're real. Satan is real, and so are demons. You see, God created all things. He created angels, and so one angel fell. Satan. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. We read about his rebellion against God, and so did other angels as well who are now Demons, fallen angels, and their choice is irrevocable. They can't be reconciled to God. And so now you have these demons. They obviously can possess unbelievers. We see that here. Believers, they cannot possess because the Bible tells us that Jesus owns us, that we are his possession. But they can impact us with external influences. We still have an impact on us. And so Satan is at war with God, and he would love to get us off track as well by living a life that doesn't trust God, that doesn't obey God, that doesn't love God, that doubts God's goodness, that doubts he is who he says he is, that doubts his power. And the Apostle Paul knew that very well. In fact, an interesting little section of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 2, it seems as though it's the context of forgiveness and Paul is encouraging the community of believers, forgive each other, forgive each other. Whatever you do, forgive each other. Why? So that no advantage, verse 11, would be taken on us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. And see, Paul knew very well the influence of the enemy and even the impact on the church that the enemy could have to create disunity. So he was warning the church. See, Satan is not equal to God, for God's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's all-present, no beginning, no end. But Satan is created, he's a created being with limited knowledge, limited power, limited insight. But this is what the Bible calls him. I want you to hear just a few terms. He's the accuser. So what does that mean? The, Satan loves to accuse. He loves to make us think that we're too bad to turn to Jesus and know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that we're too bad to, to have eternal life, that we're too bad to be called children of God. He wants you to think that you're, self-worth is not really what it is. He wants you to think that you don't have value. He wants you to think that you don't matter. He wants you to think that nobody likes you. 
and on and on and on. That's what the accuser does, and that comes from the pit of hell. He's the accuser. Not only that, he's the adversary. The Bible tells us that he's always seeking destroy. That's his mission in life. And he prowls around, Peter tells us, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's what the enemy wants to do. And so when we play around with sin, when we play around with evil, what we're doing is saying, all right, prowl. Come and prowl here. We're giving him an invitation to devour. Not only that, the enemy is the deceiver. He loves to deceive. In fact, Satan's real power is the power of deception. And he targets in on our flesh because our flesh is weak. And he so wants to deceive us. He's the father of lies. He wants you to believe lies. He wants you to lie. He's the tempter. There's a battle raging and he is just tempting and tempting us to sin, to join darkness, to align ourselves with him. That's what he wants us to do. He's a murderer. His final goal is to kill, kill everything. Kill you. Send you to hell. I mean, he'd, he'd love to see that. If you're a believer, obviously you're not going there, but he'd love to see as many people he could in their lives and go to hell. He'd love to kill marriages. He'd, he'd love to kill friendships. He'd, he loves to kill churches. He kills. That's what Satan does. He kills. He's the evil one. He is evil, and he's the enemy. Satan's real. He's a present evil. But at the same time, I want you to hear this. We are responsible. He's a present evil, but we're responsible. He will lie, but we believe the lies. He will deceive, but we accept the deception. He will tempt, but we sin. So when we participate in that, what we're doing is being taken into captivity and allowing him to do that. But our role is to silence the enemy. Our role is to flee the enemy. One of the things that I've seen, I wanted to put this in here today because I, I believe that just there's a pressure and an, obviously an unneeded pressure on motherhood today and moms today. In fact, I was reading um, an observation that was made about the New York Post that domestic perfection is in and that no one has been harder hit by this than moms. And parenting's hard. Motherhood is hard. It's messy at times. And I think the enemy loves to put the thoughts in moms' heads sometimes that you're not doing enough, or you're not measuring up. He loves to make us think that. And we've got to silence the enemy on that and not believe the accuser. Because there is this sense of this domestic perfection that hits. And I think that comes from the enemy. There's a scripture that Titus is encouraged with by Paul. Paul tells us this in Titus 2, 3. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to too much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, I read that, and some people think that, wow, that's, is that like a, a retirement home for the delicate? 
right? And like this kind of discreet, I mean, just, what, what, is, what is this? I, I think this text right here is battle words. Ladies, can I give you some battle words? Can I just give you a sword in your hand and say, hey, enemy, I'm going to silence you. I'm going to kick your, you know, hellish butt. That's a good way to put it, because that's what he is, all right? I was clean. That was clean. That was clean. <laughs> it was clean. And here's, and it's with texts like this. This is how you silence the enemy, moms. It's how you silence the enemy, because there's this secular expectation. And so how do you silence the enemy? Boom, right there. That's how you silence the enemy. Someone someone may say, and the world may say, well, that's, that's light work, right? Just to use my, this generation's phrase, that's light work. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. That right there is battle. To say as a mom, hey, I want to impact my kids. I want to raise life-changing, glorious, world-changing kids that work for the Lord. That I want to be about God's work. I want to silence the enemy, the avenger. Here's what I would say. That. That. Say silence the enemy. The world may not agree with such. They may push domestic perfection and press it and press it and press it because that's what the enemy wants, to make you think you don't measure up. But God says, hey, I have a standard. I love you. I love you exactly the way you are, and I want your mission to silence the enemy. Silence him with this, with the word. This is what it looks like. It's powerful. That's what Jesus is. Look what happens, verse 32 and 33. Now, there was a herd of swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission. By the way, I would love this scene. The demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned, right? You know those little things that says no... No animals were killed while making this movie or this commercial or whatever. Jesus would turn and go, yeah, there was. <laughs> there were. <laughs> there were in this case, right? Jesus sends the demons into these unclean animals. The unclean spirits that had filled this unclean man are now down the hill in the lake. Jesus does something here. He takes the demons. He removes them from this man, sends them to the pigs, but there's a message. There's a message to that culture. There's a message to that context. He condemns the area's paganism. He condemns the false religions to show that he can conquer them and that they are false. There's a point to this. And look what happens in verse 34 through 37. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, can you imagine this? They ran away, reported it in the city and out in the country. I'm sure they're kind of ticked. Some of them aren't. They're like, man, that's my livelihood. That's how I make money. And you just send it down the hill. And they drowned. 
The people went out, in verse 39, to see what had happened. They came to Jesus, found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down. So check this out. Sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they became frightened. And those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. That word right there, healed, even saved, right? It's the other word. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked Jesus to leave them. For they were gripped with great fear, and he got into a boat and returned. Why were they afraid? Maybe like that little girl in Africa. Superstition. What the witch doctor could do. I, I don't know. They were afraid for some reason. They were mad as well. Jesus sent their livelihood over the cliff. But this man is changed, and they could care less. They miss him. This guy who's got no clothes on, who's running around crazy. This guy who's living in the tombs. Now, in his right mind, fully clothed, sitting at the feet of Jesus. This man's transformed. People are terrified. And they tell Jesus to leave. And look what happens in verse 38 and 39. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, Jesus did. And Jesus says to the man, return to your house. Describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, this man did, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for you. Him. So this man begs Jesus, let me go with you. And Jesus wants him to stay. Why? Because he wants him to stay to be a witness of the power and the person of who Jesus is. And all the things that Jesus has done to change this man, to transform him. And what does the man do? He responds in obedience. In obedience. And he goes and he shares and he witnesses. He spreads the gospel in this unreached Gentile area. And that's when ha- what happens. When one is changed, when one is transformed, truly changed and transformed, they obey and they tell people about their great God, about their Savior, about their Savior. What's amazing about this, Jesus sends this man to the very people that just told him to leave. Wow. Wow. Sometimes Jesus calls us to hard places to do hard things. And this man obeys, and he proclaims throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Jesus, he has power. He has power over the winds. He has power over the waves. He has power over evil, over demons. Do we believe that today? Do we believe Jesus to be who he says he is. As we close today, I want to remind you what Jesus has done for us in Colossians chapter 2. Tells us of this. It says, when you were dead in your transgressions, Jesus made you alive. That's what he did for this man on this day. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, 
having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against you. So everything that was against you, and rightfully so against us, the debt that we owed and the price that we deserved to pay, all that was against us, that was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through his death. That's what Jesus did for us. Do you believe that today? If you don't, I want to encourage you. Take that first step today. Turn to Jesus. Trust in him. Yes, he is your Messiah, Savior, but he's God. He's God. That's who Jesus is. I pray, pray that's where your faith is today, in the one who can steal the waves and the wind and who can call demons out and transform lives just like that. Change them where they go from dead to living and set free. That's what Jesus came to do. Let me pray for us.